Blood Brothers Podcast for Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein. Before I introduce today's esteemed guests, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners and YouTube followers to subscribe to our YouTube channel and you can find the Blood Brothers podcast in all the major audio platforms. Today's guest is someone whose work I have been following very attentively for the last two years. Someone whose uh, presence on this podcast is long overdue. He is a political commentator, a journalist and an activist specialising in Middle East and North African affairs. And that's none other than my dear brother, Sami Hamdi. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum Dili. Thank you for having me. No, no, Sami, jazakallah khair for giving us your time. How are you, brother? Alhamdulillah, brother. Very good. This, uh, I'm, I'm honoured to join an esteemed uh, lineup of guests who've been on Blood Brothers before. I wish you had just told me that you were going to be dressed like this, <laughs> considering we are both pundits, considering we are both writers. Yeah, I, I rock up in a tracksuit and you rock up, mashallah. Nah, mashallah you rock the elegance, mashallah. I was unsure how I should dress. I thought just play it safe. No, no, no. If that's you playing safe, I'd hate to think when you're making an effort. <laughs> anyway, how's things? Alhamdulillah, everything's very good. How are you? How are you surviving this climate? Alhamdulillah, the, the climate is getting better. Uh, there was a petrol rush just yesterday. Uh, but bar that, I think, alhamdulillah, everything's going well. We've got lots to talk about today, Sami. Inshallah. Uh, and I guess let me open today's podcast like this. It was something I said to you literally just moments ago before we started filming. And that is, both of us find ourselves writing, commentating um, on the situation of the Middle East and North Africa, and by extension, the Muslim majority world. And unfortunately, we find ourselves critiquing dictatorial regimes that tend to be of a secular nature, uh, I guess the censorship of Islamic political groups and movements. So therefore there's a certain connotation at times, our critics, mine and yours, would levy against us, whether we are sympathizers or outright supporters of political Islam and so forth. So today's podcast, I guess I want to discuss with you is let's put the secular dictatorial regimes aside. Let's talk about the successes and failures of Islamic political movements. Um, and I want to kick off today's conversation about how appropriate is the term Islamist? That's a, a big question, a blockbuster question, something that keeps academics busy and writing journal after journal. And I think it's, 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 it's far more simplistic than that. I think the reality is that the term Islamist emerges as a reaction to alternative movements, other movements that are openly claiming that Islam should have no role in the state. If you go to Tunisia, for example, Munsaf al-Marzugi, the first president of the Arab Spring, openly states that he pushed back against any attempt to Islamize the constitution. We see that Tayyara Demokrati says we are Dawla Madaniya, a civil state and it has no religion. Munjir Rahwi of the uh, uh, Jabha Shabiya in Tunisia openly states and he says, I want no role whatsoever for Islam in a society, in a Muslim society, in a society where it's clear through the election results in the first free and fair elections, the people have a popular affinity towards Islam and affinity towards the idea of Islam in politics, this belief that Islam in and of itself brings prosperity, brings economic development, brings justice and the like. So I think the term Islamist emerges in this context in that when you have these political movements who are striving and pushing 
pushing for the removal of Islam from the state, who are supporting Tunisia's Beji Qaida Sipsi uh, when he was alive, when he tried to push the change in the inheritance laws. I think it's useful insofar as it helps to differentiate between these different political trends that are trying to push themselves in society and pushing back against these minority liberal trends that are trying to push back against Islam in the state. I think where it becomes more complicated is, is in the Western sphere. So for example, when you're talking about an academic discourse, if mm. you're using the term Islamist, what does that mean? If you're talking about trends that want is the Islam uh, to have a role in the state, you have Ikhwan, you have Hizb al Salafi, you have Ali the Shabiya, all of these who don't see eye to eye with one another, all of these who have a different vision over how Islam should manifest in the state. So when you're using the term Islamist, it's very uh, simplistic in narrowing down the debate that occurs within the Islamic sphere over how politics should be. Would it be fair then to say that because the spectrum of what's perceived as Islamist groups on the very right, uh, and this is not indication of, of the right or the left, <laughs> I'm just giving an example of the spectrum. You have ISIS, Al-Qaeda, you have these groups, and then on the other side, you'll have Ikhwan and other groups. So because the spectrum of Islamist groups is so vast and diverse, it'd be somewhat unfair and misrepresentative to coin that term to cover all those groups, surely. No, 100%. And this is why I think that when it comes to the academic discourse, this is where it goes wrong. So, for example, in the Muslim world, when you're debating, a lot of the discussion with regards to Islam and its role in the state is very different from Western discourse. The Western discourse is still looking at it in a very broad term as to the role of the religion generally, whereas we're talking about whether hudud should be implemented, whether mm. it should be suspended, whether it should be in the form of a caliphate or a democracy in which, for example, you have a parliament that acts as Majlis Shura, you know, mm. and the president who doesn't contravene a constitution we put a clause in the constitution saying no laws may be passed that contravene Islam. That debate is very different. Where the, the term becomes problematic is that when you're starting to include the likes of ISIS who in the amongst the Islamists between themselves, they see them as khawarij, they see them as outside the fold yeah. of Islam. That's where it becomes problematic. And this is why as a very loose term in defining the struggle between a minority liberal group in the Arab world who are trying to push for the ousting of Islam in society and are struggling to do so. And when it come, when they can't do it via elections, they support military coups such as they did uh, with CCO, such as Muhammad Abu in Tunisia recently mm. when he called for Qais Saeed and now he regrets it because Qais Saeed is not giving him the parliament. He's deciding yeah. to go for power by himself. Uh, but I think in this context, Islamist works. Where it doesn't work is when it's used to describe uh, actual policy as opposed to general trends. Okay, then in that case, then, if, if I was to posit to you, do you use the term Islamist? I use it in so far as we are talking about, for example, uh, uh, let's say we're looking at parties that advocated for the role of Islam in politics and mm. the parties that have beaten them in Tunisia or in Morocco are parties that openly advocate against the role of Islam in society. I think here it makes sense that you have one group that, you, you know, argues for religion, the other doesn't. Uh, where I, but I think that domestically, and, and I deal a lot in the domestic politics of the Middle East, and, and, I, and I confess that in terms of the Western discourse and the like, I'm not as engaged perhaps uh, uh, I should be. But for example, in the domestic discourse, these terms are not necessarily used. We don't call another uh, uh, al-Islamiyin uh, in so far as we call them another. We call them another more than Islamiyin because we know that Islamiyin could contain some of these other parties uh, in and of themselves. So I think that uh, I use the term loosely. 
Um, but I realize that these days I have I find myself having to caveat quite a bit <laughs> in that by Islamist I mean those parties who are engaged in civil society who are pushing it, not ISIS and not the like. But the the point I want to make here, Dilly, is this: I think there is an insincerity in the way people use the word Islamist, and I think I don't think necessarily there's something wrong with the term, but rather wrong something wrong with those who use the term to include ISIS because it's very easy to put. Everybody knows any sane human being can see that no Muslim supports I no. Muslim in his right mind supports ISIS. Any no. sane human being can see that the Muslims denounce Al-Qaeda, that the Muslims denounce ISIS. Therefore, it takes a very insincere and vile person to start calling ISIS and Daesh Islamists. And this is why I think the politicization takes place in that after 9-11, Bush needs an enemy, Rumsfeld mm. needs an enemy. Mm. They need somebody to put before the American people who have this bloodlust to punish uh, how dare Bin Laden, you know, bombed yes. the Twin Towers. And they decide to collectively punish a region. And to do that, they mobilize Hollywood, which presents an order Muslim as their enemy and, and now we're suffering that as 20 years later but that's why I think the term Islamist in and of itself objectively it's 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 fine to use it objectively it makes sense if you're differentiating between different political trends but I think just as Muslim the word Muslim you're focusing on Islamist but even if you say to somebody the airport I am Muslim please sir can you stand on the side please let absolutely me. So, so it's not just Islamist it's the anything to do with Islam and I think that's why the problem is bigger than this concept of, of uh, Islamist it's more to do with Islamophobia and the rise of Islamophobia and therefore anybody who argues for Quran, anybody who argues for Sunnah, anybody who says that Islam has a role in society, anybody who says in the constitution as I was part of a party that campaigned for it to include in the constitution that Islam is the religion of the state and no law should be passed that contravenes Islam, uh, suddenly it was like ah Islamist, Salafist, extremists etc. So it's anything to do with this Islamophobia and that's why I think uh, that's where the Islam Islamist movements and I'm going to use that term Islamist movement. It's safe, this is a safe space for us yeah. to use it. <laughs> If there's ever a safe space, this is the safe space to uh, use the term. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, but I, think, I, I think that's where a lot of their struggles over the past 10 years, even if I personally believe they dug their own holes, uh, albeit the environment was also a bit not, not conducive, uh, I do think that they suffered from, they spent a lot of time trying to justify themselves as opposed to actually be, you know, the world saying to them, okay, we understand, move on. The world is still asking, what are Islamists and who are they? And the reality is the answer is staring them in the face, but politically it's not suitable to accept that answer. Now, you've made a fair amount of references to recent events in Tunisia. Let's put aside the, the coup that's taken place and, this, and, 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 the, and the plan to take over power, unequivocal power, uh, by the president. Let's look at uh, Mr. Ghanoushi and, and Nahda themselves, who not too long ago, Sami, said that political Islam no longer exists, or that Nahda should not be called a political Islamist, right? Is it the case, and you said it yourself literally minutes ago, that when you use the term Islamist movements or Islamist parties, you caveat it by saying those groups that want to work within the civil society uh, and try to introduce uh, some form of Islam into the constitution, into civil society and so forth. Is it not the case then that Islamism or political Islam has become synonymous with the Muslim Brotherhood and all its very various asso associations and, 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 and offshoots and types across the Middle East and North Africa. So now we have a problem. Whenever Dehwan does something, whether in Tunisia or in Morocco or in Egypt or in uh, where, wherever they may be in the Muslim majority world, in the MENA specifically with regards to your expertise, that their faults become the faults of the Islamic political movement, Abadan. 
Like, like that's it. The Ikhwan has become synonymous with whatever political Islam means. So their failures and their successes is associated with this revival or movement. Do you think I that's think he, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think the reality is because the Ikhwan were the most organized, most powerful, most widespread, uh, most successful, let's be brutally honest, before they were in power, the sympathy for them was immense. If you went to Egypt and you saw somebody from Ikhwan, even in the time of Mubarak or Anwar said, it's like, Salamu alaykum, Sheikh. Even they used to say in Algeria, whenever a, a, Mus a, 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 a Muslim brother would walk past, a drunkard would hide his beer, for example, out of respect. If they saw a woman wearing hijab or wearing niqab, it'd be like, uh, you know, it's, as in there was a lot of respect, a lot of, and, and I think people, so where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Yeah, I, I think people forget just the weight and, and also the charities and the role that and, and the way they were involved in business and they're like Ahmed Abid and Hassan Malik and Khaydat al-Shatal. They were huge business tycoons. They were involved in all levels uh, of uh, society. So I, I think you're right in that Ikhwan have become the flag bearers rather of Islamism by virtue of their success. And I think that's a natural human inclination. Where I think they went wrong, and, and, and I think this is where perhaps uh, I differ slightly from academic discourse, and, and, and I admit to the audience that I fled from academia 10 years ago. I did my master's and fled. I didn't feel it was as relevant. <laughs> and, and, that's, and, and, and I think these days, I, I was naive back then. I do believe that there is a lot of credit in academia, but I can only speak from my experience, which is that uh, I think that the issue mainly was power. And I think it's very similar in that when you get to power, let's suppose me and you, Dili, we're working together and we build a movement and we suddenly sure. arrive to power. The dynamics become very different, Dili. Who's president? Who's prime minister? Who's interior minister? Who's defense minister? Am I going to allow you, when you're disagreeing with me day in, day out, to have the power to mobilize the security forces against me? Am I going to allow you to outshine me? There is a famous Chinese saying that when the servant's light outshines the master, the servant should be killed. In other words, should I allow you to go on TV and speak bombastically on Good Morning Britain and the like? When I'm the one who is the, the leader at the top and, and, and the president and the like. And this is why when somebody comes and says, but yeah, Sheikh, Wallahi, Dili is a good man. Dili is doing a lot for us. He's bringing people to our cause. I say, don't put Dili, send instead, I don't know, send the Oasis or send the, uh, you know, uh, Professor send, uh, or, send or, 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 or send somebody else. And I think herein lies the issue in that uh, a lot of people want to put it down to ideology. A lot of people want to put it down to, but I think there's actually great uh, similarities between what happened to the Islamists and the Fitna al-Kubra between Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah, not necessarily in its details, but rather in this phenomenon, which is that even the best of men suddenly can fall out over politics. They can fall out uh, over, you know, you know, Talha ibn Ubaidullah as he was dying, Ali ibn Abi Talib said, I wish I had never seen this day. And they were on opposite sides. He says, Absolutely. I wish I had never seen this day. His love for him was such. And the reason why I mentioned from this regard as opposed to ideology is because I think this is what happened in Tunis. This is what happened in Egypt. This is what we're seeing also rumors coming out with the Taliban as to who should rule, who should take the positions yeah. and the like. Because this becomes about personal interaction. And this is why I think that we love to talk about the, the injunctions in Islam about, you know, say the kind word, say the nice word. We think that it's only to do with, you know, nice, happy days, you know, interaction with your neighbor. No, it, even in politics, it makes a huge difference because Allah is as if he's telling people that it's those personal interactions that can cascade into a disaster. So when in 2011, another decides and says, is, another is upset that he didn't win Sidi Bouzid, that another a party of Islamist leanings uh, wins third place and suddenly where he could have had a majority, he has to now form an alliance. The reaction of another is not to work with him, but to say, no, forget it. I'm, I'm going to ally with Marzouki 
understand the secular parties instead, and you go and sit at the negotiations, and you're thinking, why? And when you sit with them, it's, it, it's not with another, I'm talking generally, I'm not going to yeah, pinpoint yeah, sure. any particular party. Of course. It's like, you know, Ahlan, Kif, Halik, etc. And then in the media, it's a rabid attack, non-stop, etc. And this is why I think that the Islamist failures is best explained in terms of the personal interactions that took place than the ideology. This idea of uh, Ibn Khaldun says that human beings uh, generally, if left unchecked, always overreach. So in other words, the reason we have these laws, etc., is to make sure that we can all live of together course. side by side. Uh, when another felt in 2011 that they were all powerful, they got the overwhelming majority. Uh, Egypt, when they won the elections, I remember Mohammed Baltaki came on TV after the election and said, we will not allow this. And everybody's looking at him saying, but you're not in power yet. The, 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 the army is still there. There was this sense, you know, we have this divine right, we've come to power, etc. Uh, and I think a lot of this affected the way they interacted with others, so much so that they failed to build the broad alliances that were necessary to achieve their aims. But to put into, uh, to add nuance to it so that I don't appear extremely harsh, there's also a very interesting uh, dynamic that I think is often underrated, which is that, think about it, another spent, or, or even Ikhwan in Egypt less so, but Ak Party and the Nahda, I think can use the two, spent most of their time, and even the Freedom and Justice Party in Morocco, spent mm. most of their time insisting they were not pure Islamists. We are a secular party. We so isn't this a problem? But, but the point here I want to make is this. It's interesting that despite the popular mandate, despite the thousands of people, despite the 1.5 million of a 3 million electorate in Tunisia that voted another, another still believed America was more powerful. They still believe France was more powerful. They still believe, whereas we talk and say that if the people are with you, we have stronger, we have a mandate. Mm. Another didn't believe this. Another didn't trust this. Another didn't capitalize on this. They received a mandate, 1.5 million votes, the largest party uh, in parliament. They could have done a lot. They could have genuinely pushed through a lot in the constitution, through an alliance with the third largest party, and boom, they have a majority and they push through it. Of course, there might be debates as to how to engage other successions of society, but that's a different issue. But uh, the, the, the other issue that perhaps justifies their approach, actually justifies is the wrong word, but makes it understandable, is I remember, and I know anecdotes are bad form, but I hope people forgive me for it. I was invited in 2018 to a, a closed door conference on security in the Middle East in Rome. There was the second in command of the US forces in the Gulf. There was delegations from some Gulf and there was the EU delegation. The point I want to make is this. I remember somebody saying, but when Mursi came to power, do you not feel that your lack of support for Mursi encourages extremism because you have a Muslim party who came to power via democracy and you refuse to support them? And the EU diplomat says, yes, but when Mursi came to us, Mursi said, yes, but I am the majority. I was like, well, yeah, he was the majority, but that's mm. not how you rule. What do you mean that's not how uh, the Conservative Party here, Boris Johnson is doing Khalos. what he wishes now. And, exactly. Uh, and then the elections, they go past. Why is it a problem if Morsi says that he is the majority? So, but but mm. the point I want to make is when Morsi pushed in the limited way that he did, he got the backlash, military coup, Obama recognizes it, Europe recognizes it. Everybody bands together, Al-Baradi and the liberals, they all get together to overthrow the elections because they don't like the fact that they lost in the elections and the Ikhwan won. So maybe another had a point when it was terrified of the potential of a coup. But the overall point I want to make is this, and the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm side, I'm dodging your question and sidestepping. So what makes and, Erdogan different? And, and, what makes the Akbar and Erdogan different in this regard? Erdogan made far more compromises than both Al-Nahva 
and the Ikhwan al-Muslimin in Egypt. But also Erdogan, the reason why people justify him more than the other two is because Turkey is a unique situation in that it is far more heavily secular. Ataturk established a state that utterly tried to eliminate all forms of Islam. Ataturk changed the entire education system, created a whole parallel alternative history so much so think about it Dili Sheikh Ahmed Sanusi of Libya mm. during mm. World War One Ataturk was so worried and scared that the Anatolians rejected him because of his secular nature he asked Ahmed Sanusi the Libyan to go to Anatolia and yeah. convince those Turks those Muslim Turks to fight with Ataturk he continued to support him because he thought that if Ataturk could rescue the caliphate then maybe later yep. he could and then afterwards Ataturk told him yalla Sheikh uh, all due respect, stay home, yalla, <laughs> bye bye. And then he yeah. eventually went to uh, Al Saud. This is not taught in Turkish history. My great grandfathers fought in Algeria and in Tunisia on behalf of the Ottoman Empire because they believed the Ottoman Empire was worth defending. Many in the Arab, we always say the Arab betrayal, and it's true that you know a Sharif of uh, Mecca betrayed the Ottomans and the like. But many Arabs were against him. They fought with the Turkish general who stayed behind in Medina. To this isn't taught. What the Turks are taught is if the whole world betrayed you, and only because you're a Turk, and therefore your success is that you're attack and this is why this you develop as a Turk no. and this is why people justify Erdogan in that Erdogan is the first time in nearly a century that a leader has emerged who's chipping away at it and this is why I think that whilst perhaps I may have reservations as to what Erdogan is doing the trend is clear 2002 I went to Turkey I said mashallah they'd laugh on the street these days you go to Turkey you say mashallah he goes brother where are you from yeah, these yeah. days when you wanted to go to Hagia Sophia it was closed I remember going there as a naive uh, 18 year old and, and going in and thinking okay I'm going to pray my uh, two raka'ah you know, uh, <laughs> Masjid. And the guy said, what you did? <laughs> Have you lost? And I'm like, what do you mean? They said Ataturk made it into a museum. Like, oh, yeah. But as in now, he's, like you can see the trend going. And I think the debate is, but that's why I think Erdogan gets more justification than another and Ikhwan where another Nihwan, you have a society that believes in the idea, believes in the concept, believes in the role of Islam. That is indisputable. No one argues that Islam shouldn't have a role. No one argues that Islam is backwards. No one argues that Islam is regressive. And the proof is every single election in the region who wins, anybody who says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Dili, I went to Egypt in 2013. I went to Suhag, a countryside in the, in the area. And I remember I was going around trying to see what Egyptians were saying. And I remember... Um, one gent, a farmer, and I said to him, uh, Salam alaikum, alaikum salam, who are you voting? Well, I'm voting for Ikhwan. Li, why? Uh, because uh, they fear Allah. I was like, but what about his program, his economic program, his political program, etc.? He said, all that doesn't concern me. If he fears Allah, Allah will open for him. As if the idea that if anybody holds Islam, you know, uh, the, the concept is still there and I think this is why the criticism of Anahda and Ikhwan and I'll finish on this point this is why the criticism of Anahda and Ikhwan is far more uh, tough and harder than it is on Erdogan with Erdogan you can see that Turkey is starting to come back to the Muslim world the speed of it you can debate it his tactics in doing so is debated but it's clear I saw your video on you and Aya Sophia when you were there in front of them you were doing the live there from Istanbul it was something that that was really unique people say he did it for PR purposes I'm like I don't care why he did it but That's the it. reality is alhamdulillah I can see the shackles yeah slowly. why am I I mean, to I mean I mean the argument with Aya Sophia was let's put aside why Erdogan is doing it <laughs> yeah let's talk about the ripple effects of what this may have in this generation the generations to come Exactly. I I, and it's funny you mentioned that memory. I remember me and my younger brother, we were there and there were other journalists who were there from the Middle Eastern press, Al Jazeera, the, the Turks had their domestic press and so forth. 
And there was a handful of journalists, Sami, handful that when they were making takbir, we were saying Allahu Akbar. <laughs> and some of the journalists were looking at us because, well, we're Muslim journalists. What do you want us to do? <laughs> but you know, Didi, I'll tell you something interesting as well about Erdogan. And this is where uh, um, I, I, I reflect on my naivety in the past. And I'm not saying that Erdogan is the model or Erdogan is the model we should follow or the like. But I want to make some certain points that at least will get people thinking about some things. I worked for this uh, political risk company in 2013. And it was a, a whirlwind experience. I didn't know the industry existed. I eventually entered it. Alhamdulillah, I've, I've done well in it. But the, the, the job of the company was to advise people on how polit politics affects their business. Now, I remember a, a, one of the world's biggest alcohol companies came to the company. And of course, it turns out, astaghfirullah, uudhu billah, etc. But they were offering good money. And of course, you're tempted by fitna at the time. Of course. So the, the, what the, the company asked, and I won't name it, the company asked, and, it, and it's, it, it's the biggest, they own like all the major brands you see on TV. Yeah. They asked, they said, Turkey has, Erdogan is passing a law banning alcohol after 10 p.m. And I said, okay, this means a 30% drop in our profits. If Erdogan is gonna continue like this, we may as well just withdraw the alcohol, the beverages, and just focus on bottling, providing bottling to Coca-Cola or the like. Mm. I said, so what do you want from me? We wanna know, is Erdogan gonna lose next election? What variables do we have to watch for Erdogan to lose? <laughs> You know, uh, can the Kurds revolt against him? Can this, yeah, can that? And if you tell us Crazy. that Erdogan is staying, then forget it. We'll just uh, decide to change our operations. Dili, you know when somebody grabs a bucket of cold water and throws it on your face and you suddenly think, subhanallah, one law that, and I remember all the brothers at the time, like when we were there, they were like, look at him, he's so weak. He makes oh, a law 10 after 10 p.m. Why what does he just ban it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, why do you just ban it completely? I was one of them. I was yeah. one of them. I was, I was. But when I saw the way that the executive board of the global operations of this company is so terrified of this law, is so angry about it, is so angry with Erdogan, saying that we know he really deep down, he wants to do this and he wants to bring back this and that, and we're really angry about this, and we're lobbying against it, we're lobbying to put pressure. I thought, subhanAllah, I'm a jail. I don't understand anything. It's clear, <laughs> it's clear that I don't understand the rules of the game. Like, like, and this is why I think that, I, I know that I'm not giving clear answers to your questions, but, but what I'm trying to do is to reflect an experience in which I was forced to ask questions that to this day, I don't have answers to. Look, Sammy, I think what you're trying to basically say, bro, look, it's, it's a case of maturing as a writer, as a journalist, as an activist, as a observer from the Ummah, that the running of states and governments is a very multi-complex issue where at face value, we might see the banning of cons cons uh, the consumption of alcohol at 10 o'clock or, or, or the legalization of brothels to a particular areas or numbers within a building. And we may think, what, what joke is this, Yanni? Like, why are you making uh, drinking alcohol after 10 o'clock haram when it's haram abadan around the clock? <laughs> yeah. And so therefore we, but the, the reality of it is that the running of a government the dealing of various institutions. And if your state is a state which has a deep state and you are in a constant threat of being overthrown or removed or, and so forth, that I think the reality of how states and government societies run become very, very, very complex. And so, nuance, valid, yeah. so but, but, nuance, nuance is required and dodging questions is required. But, but, <laughs> but you know, you, you, make a, you make a valid point that I played uh, football throughout my, my high school and then, and then college and then at university. Sure. And I remember a coach said to a substitute who was upset that he wasn't playing on the first team. 
and uh, the coach would tell him, yeah, but everybody's a genius on the bench. Everybody's yeah. smart when they're out of the game. Yeah, but yeah. when you're there, play, I was a midfielder, you know, it's hard to see the, the right pass to do. But one of the, re the reason I mentioned this particular saying is that one of the things that I admire, I mean, I know I've criticized heavily the, on, on Facebook and on, on social media and in my saying that the Islamists, they failed. But there's one thing that should be appreciated, which is I went to Tunisia in 2014. I went to try to mobilize people to go to vote. I went to talk to people to tell them, it's hard, Dili. Dili, I tell you, I just, just, I know anecdotes are bad, but, but, but no, I'll no, tell do you, it. Go for it. I'll tell it. you something interesting. We went to this remote countryside to a cafe to try to convince these people to go vote for a particular candidate. Alhamdulillah, he ended up getting elected. But I remember at this time, and I spent a good two hours until my throat was hoarse, and I was like, brothers, you know, we can, if we stand together, we can beat the corruption, we can beat this. And they're like, yeah, but what can you do? Yeah, but what can you do? I had a, a brother next to me, a part of my team, pulls me to the side. He goes to me, Sammy, you're wrong. These are people who've been humiliated 60 years. They only understand humiliation. If you want them to come with you, you have to humiliate them. You're telling them to have hope. But all they see, they see kindness as weakness. They see love as weakness. You have to humiliate them. Astaghfirullah, I turned around to and I said, okay, you know what? I'm sick and tired of it. Let's try Wajdi's way. And I said to them, okay, brothers, you know what? Stay the way you are. Stay with the, uh, with the corrupt foot on the back of your neck. You lot love being slaves. You love the whip. You love the slap on the face from that policeman. You love it when people take your land by force, when they leave you in misery, they leave you in this. And I'm coming from London and telling you guys, go to vote. And you guys, instead, you start berating me and telling me that I'm weak. I go back to comfort. You stay in this poverty and stay in this rubbish area that you're living in, all this rubbish everywhere, all this cafe your dirty clothes here and there you're this and that. i'm telling you let's have hope and you're uh, being arrogant with me go for, you know forget it i'm the one who's wrong for coming to you wallahi dilly one guy what in the back have? goes one guy in the back goes wallahi is right yeah. <laughs> wallahi is, listen boy wallahi wallahi everybody here will vote for you wallahi yeah. will vote in that area we only got 30 votes which were the 30 people who were sitting there in that cafe <laughs> but but as in but but the thing is is that the reason why i mentioned is that how did ikhwan get that kind of support, get that kind of movement, get that kind of mobilization. It's easy to say they made the wrong decisions and the like, and I think they made the wrong decisions. I think they should have made better decisions. But Dili, when I try to go into the field, and, 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 and I'm still in it, but when I, when I try to speak to people and mobilize them, Dili, it's difficult. It's difficult to tell a poor man to have hope, to tell a poor man he has power, to tell a poor man that he is capable of overthrowing a system and bringing about another system in place, to tell him after the failure of the Islamists. I mean, I remember in 2011, if uh, the security guards, the, so there were bodyguards accompanying us here and there, provided by the interior ministry, they had the alamat al-sijd on their heads. And me, like a naive, you know, you know I, I said, mashallah, these brothers, they pray. And then one of them says, no, no, we were so terrified by the Islamist wave, we burnt our heads over here. So that people would think that we are religious as well because we thought, you know, something serious is coming yeah, yeah, yeah. to show you the wave. But by 2014, 2015, if you went to someone and says, qala Allah, qala Rasul, like, ah, nahdawi, man, like, you guys had four years in power, you did nothing. So in, and to convince that person that, like you said, that Islamism is not just the Muslim Brotherhood, Islam is not just the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. It's difficult. And this is why in many ways, and, and, and I digress slightly and, and, and I'll finish on this point. These days when I read the seerah, these days when I read it, wallahi, I'm not saying that I understand it, but I, I feel I have a glimpse in the torture, the spiritual torture that Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam had when he was going to Mecca calling him to the deen. When he spent 13 years, Dili, mm. telling them, yeah, Jama'ah, come to the deen, come, it's good for you, it's this, it's that. And not even that, the majority didn't even follow him. He was still in the, in, in the minority. Minority, of course. Like, it's, 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 it's so difficult. And not yeah. only that, he sent Musa bin Umayn to Medina and he sent to the other tribes, went to Taif and told them, please, guys, 
you know, come with, I always think you can do it in a year or two years or three years or whatever. 13 years and he didn't succeed, subhanAllah. Noah spent 900 years and, 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 and didn't even, Allah decided to destroy his people. But the reason is when I read it these days, I think subhanAllah is the problem that I believe that I could do it as opposed to relying on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do it. And this is why, and I know it sounds brutal and I know it sounds harsh, Part of me, part the dark side of me believes that perhaps the problem with the Islamist movements is that they became like the one who does Salat without making Takbir in the beginning. They read Quran with a melodious voice without the Takbir in the beginning. And Salat is not accepted if the Takbir is not done in the beginning, irrespective of the most beautiful Surah that you read. I know that sounds, I'm not going into the hearts or the intentions, but rather I'm asking myself these questions in that when, when I've tasted going to convince people, I find it hard. When I try to interact with people, I find it hard. When you try to build alliances dili between Muslim organizations it's hard very hard so is it very right hard. for me to be brutal to the muslim brotherhood movement is it right is this or can i objectively say they went wrong here there etc and the biggest conundrum dili and, 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 and i promise i'll finish on this point the biggest conundrum that i find is this is that you can get to power you can make charities you can engineer when we're all fighting for a common cause it's all good what happens when we get there dili what happens when after prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam dies and ali bin abi talib delays in giving the bay'ah to abu bakr as-siddiq radiyallahu anhuma you know when uh, Uthman bin Affan struggles to get the Sahaba to rally around him to prevent the uh, opposition from coming in and, and killing him. When Ali bin Abi Talib, one of the most noble of individuals, can't come to agreement between him and Muawiyah, Hassan al Basri says that the only difference between the people of Sham and the people of Medina is the blood of Uthman. In other words, when I go to both of them, I don't see any difference in this. When the Prophet says, and, and, and I use this only in conflict resolution, when he says about Al Hassan ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, that he will bring peace between two groups of Muslims. No. Think, he says two groups of Muslims, Dili. He, and, and he's celebrated for bringing the peace, not for making one party win over the other. The Prophet celebrated the peace, the reconciliation here. How do I interpret that in the concept of, of Libya, where you have warring factions in the East, warring factions in the West, both insulting each other, both signing, both rejecting elections, both rejecting, uh, you know, you know, a political process. How, how does this apply here? And what I've come to appreciate somewhat, even if perhaps I don't fully understand it, is that da'wah is hard, reconciliation is hard, get, talking people and bringing them together is hard, and winning hearts is hard. The Prophet Sallallahu when I, when I read Musab ibn Umayr when he went to Sa'd ibn Mu'ad and convinced him so much so that Sa'd ibn Mu'ad marches out in Badr, and when the Prophet Sallallahu says to him, Ashir alayya, give me advice, Sa'd goes, as if you're asking us, Mm. Yeah, so are you actually asking my opinion? Like I'm with you wholeheartedly. Dili, if I was to ask you today, let's come up with a plan, me and you, how to win the hearts of these people so that they go with us, that when the army tries to do a coup against us, they take to the streets like the people of Turkey to prevent the coup from taking place against Erdogan. I promise you, Dili, we'll spend a decade, two decades, three decades, and we'll probably still be like, subhanAllah, what's going on here? And this is why I think that there are more questions than answers. And, 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 and the older I get, and I'm not that old, but the older I get, the more how I begin to feel like I have less answers. You know, and, and, and this is why I make this point in that we can get to power, but what happens afterwards? And, and that's and that's why I think the Islamists found it very difficult. Mursi came to power with there's debt. He has to deal with the IMF. He doesn't know what to do. You know, there's Israel on the border. He doesn't know what to do. A protocol letter goes out calling Shimon Perez, uh, calling the president of Israel, my, my friend or whatever, Mohammed Sudan, the head of external relations, insists and he says it was a protocol message sent from the time of Mubarak and that Mursi tried to withdraw it. But irrespective, when you're dealing with superpowers, when you're uh, sitting with Putin, when you're sitting with Obama, are you going to say to him, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, and back off and I'm going to fight you? 
And then when you get overthrown, Dili Hussein does a Black Brothers podcast with Sami, and they say, Wallah, these Ikhwan, you see how so foolish in politics, you know, they, they couldn't understand. But 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 as if, this is why, like, I, I feel like, subhanAllah, there is a lesson in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not give success to every prophet. That Absolutely. Yunus salam, abandoned his cause and it was eaten by the whale, for example. Musa salam, had to flee. Musa salam, if you look at it, the latter stage, and this is, I'm, I'm so glad, sorry to interject, Sami. You know, when you're giving all those examples from, from the seerah as well as uh, what happened after, one of the ones I think about is the fact when Bani Israel refused to fight, just to enter, and Allah mentioned, just enter and victory will be yours. <laughs> Go fight with your Lord. So obviously many of the ulama and the scholars of Quran said that this was a generation that was used to humiliation. It was a generation that was okay with Fir'aun's oppression. It was, it was a generation that saw the sea split. It was a generation that saw all the miracles, yet they refused to fight and Allah promised them victory, yet they refused to fight. So that generation had to get cleansed. A new generation had to come under Yusha bin Nun alayhi salam, and that's when victory was given. But you, make better, but you know, Dili, on this point, I remember when I was in... Uh... When I was in Soas, I was in the prayer room and there is this tutor. May Allah continue to bless him and reward him. He's, I, I consider him a genius. He's a brother called Amen. Sham Qayyum and uh, he teaches at Soas and he does a lot of work in the community. Sham came into the prayer room once and we were young and, and, and very passionate, mashallah. And he said to us, guys, I have a theory. He said, yes, Sham, what is it? He was a PhD student at the time and he was a tutor. And he said, I believe that uh, Iman is 99% rationality, 1% leap of faith. What do you mean 1% leap of faith? Yeah. The Quran is, you know, he goes, no, it's 99% rationality, 1% leap of faith. What do you mean? You can accept the miracles of the Quran. You can accept, you know, when Allah says that the plans go in orbit and the mountains are like pegs and mm. that the seas do not overlap. But to believe it came from Allah and his messenger needs the 1% leap of faith. I, of course, was very upset with what he said. I reflected on it about seven, eight years later. And I came to understand what he meant in that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran when he forgives the people of, of Uhud, when he says, It's this last part I'm interested in, tawakkal Allah. In other words, plan, prepare, and tawakkal Allah. In other words, that 1% that he was talking about is necessary. Absolutely. You, you have to be prepared to make that gamble. And, and I'll um, give a, a modern example, even though many people won't like it. When Erdogan in northern Syria, when the YPG were, were spreading, he was pushing, pressuring the Americans, and he was hesitating. The Americans were like, we're not allowing it, we're not allowing it. Then he eventually said to them, guys, you know what? I'm going in. I'm, I'm going to do, do, do it myself. Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Gina Haspel, they rushed immediately from Washington to Ankara to speak to Erdogan. They, as in, they rushed, they went and they said, okay, okay, Erdogan, what do you want? This idea that Erdogan was in a corner and he decided to, many people might think that's not the best example, but my point here is this, in that this idea that what I feel is lacking in Muslim politics generally is this aspect. We have to see the end goal before we start. But I think there are some things that Allah forces upon us where he says, jump, like Sham was saying, mm. jump. Like, okay, you're prepared, you're in power, you have control of the foreign ministry, you have control of the interior ministry, you have control, you've won the elections, you've won, etc. Yalla, show me your metal. Mm. And I feel the Islamists didn't jump. They, and, and the thing is, and here's the point I want to make here. I don't know if I would have jumped. I don't know if me sitting here preaching, I don't know if I would have... Some have said, look, look, I, I think it'd be fair to encapsulate the entire last half an hour that we've been speaking about. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sammy, is what you're basically saying is that, look, it's easy to criticize Islamic political movements, the Ikhwan specifically. They've done uh, undeniably 
mashallah, great work on a grassroots level. And, and so have their South Asian counterparts, Jamati Islam, in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, especially in Bangladesh and Pakistan. They've, they've done, it's a similar story. Having to deal with secular parties, having to deal with the Awami League, having to deal with the BMP, having to deal with PPP, having to do, it's the same kind of story, even though very different in terms of the societies that you're dealing with in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, mainly Bangladesh, Pakistan. But I guess what I'm trying to posit to you is that, let's say we conceived all those points that you've made, all the great civil society, grassroots, dawa, business, basically, and, and all of that, all of that. But how do we then position ourselves as political pundits of Kalima and Iman when it comes to certain policies pushed by the Ikhwan or Israel in, in terms of normalizing relations with Israel, uh, in the case of Morocco, um, trying to heavily distance themselves from any connotations to Islam in public, in the case of Tunisia. Uh, in the case of Egypt, some have said regarding uh, Muhammad Mursi rahimahullah, is that they didn't do enough. They should have actually just killed off all these military guys, put their own guys and actually took power properly, yeah? Or in the case of Erdogan, that this guy, he talks about Al-Aqsa, he talks about the Rohingya, but really this guy is making record break, billion trillion dollars with Israel. How do we then position ourselves to criticize objectively and fairly those kind of policies? That's a whopper of a question. Well, you, you, were, you were drilling for about <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> I, think, I, I think first, let me answer your question this way. I think people sometimes do not appreciate the progress that's been made in the past 70 years or 80 years. By that I mean 80 years ago, my father's Tunisian, my mother's Algerian. My, I, I, I'm old enough, or I was old enough to see my grandfather, Allah with his torture Ameen. marks on his body. I was old enough to see the, his generation or the people who were tortured in France's prisons and I met the Mujahideen and my grandfather was one of them who fought in the mountains. Alhamdulillah. 80 years ago, Algeria was under official French colonization. It was legitimate for France to put a France flag on Algerian schools to torture. They were there and the international community recognized Algeria as part of France. Independence movement takes place. Algeria is under unofficial colonization through the economy and the like. Arab Spring takes place. Suddenly now me and you are talking about how can we move forward? There is this strategic autonomy that allows this discussion, allows this debate that we're having to have relevance. That Your question is put because you believe there is genuine hope that we can move forward. Of and course, I believe of there is genuine hope we that's can That's why we're having forward. this conversation. Exactly. And that's built. And this is why I think that if you look at the last 10 years, you feel despair. But if you look at the last 70 years, you see progress. The reason why I mention this is this, is that each of the people who came before us did what they could do within the cur their current situation. My grandfather went to the mountains to fought to secure the freedom for the generations such as myself to begin to talk about how to build a state. Back then there wasn't a state. It was, let's get it first. Like let's, let's liberate our people first, then we can talk about it. Allah gave him his life and he died eventually. And then that was his, you know, nasib. That was what mm. Allah gave him. The question that you put, and I can rephrase it in that, what are we supposed to do as the generation here? The reality is that I don't have an answer insofar as a grand scheme of things. The way I see it is that, and, and sometimes I feel that my Turkish brothers sometimes are, are a bit sensitive to it, is that 
when I say that, when I complain about Erdogan doing ties with Israel, it's not because I hate him. It's because I'm thinking, Erdogan, please, you've done so well. Don't do it. You know, you, you can genuinely. When I say to Mohammed bin Salman in 2018, before the Khashoggi affair, that you have a golden opportunity, yeah, Mohammed bin Salman. You can do like Abdulaziz Al Saud in the beginning, who when Ataturk betrayed the Muslim world, Al Saud was the one giving the weapons and funding out to Omar Mukhtar and the others and the like. Albeit Al Saud decided in the end to be a, a, a tribal chief as opposed to leader of the Ummah. But irrespective, there was this concept of let's try and and push each other and encourage each other. When I say when Muhammad bin when Muhammad bin Zayed decides that his economic glory and policy that he's achieved in UAE, which is impressive, let's talk objectively, UAE, even if I dislike it and I feel it's artificial, in terms of what they've been able to do in the desert, it's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, of course it is. Undeniable. But, 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 but to say to Muhammad bin Zayed, this is not what's going to count for you, Yom al-Qiyamah. Like, you have power, do it, you have influence, use it in the correct way. When we say to Qatar, Ya Qatar, it is illegitimate of you to bring Israel and the US to the region just because you don't like Saud. It's illegitimate for you to say to Israel, I'll make ties with you in 1996 because you don't like Al Saud's uh, policies. Well, that, that's not how we operate. I don't care what you do with Al Jazeera in terms of what, what it brings in its broadcast. Like, this is wrong. Like, you open the door and then criticize everybody else for doing it afterwards. Like, you broke the ground with regards to it. You set the trends. And this is why uh, I think that when it comes to the role that at least I see myself in, one of the reasons I started the international interest was primarily because I felt that I wanted to be somebody who, uh, a, a, an actor who believes in Islam and believes in Muslim unity who I could try to see if I could apply media pressure on Erdogan to uh, push back uh, on, the, on decisions that I feel he's taking wrong, but also defend him on decisions he's taking right. Let's be honest, the European Union hates Erdogan not because he is a secular. I remember in Brussels, and I know anecdotes are bad form, but I'll say it anyway. I was invited in Brussels to discuss the Qatar blockade. And I remember uh, giving an example saying, guys, if Erdogan was secular, you wouldn't have these problems with him. He could do the same thing in Syria and wherever else he's doing the exact same actions. But if he was secular and didn't read Quran every time he enters a mosque, you guys would have no problem with him. And they were like, no, no, no. How can you say that? And then an Israeli assistant professor who was there came uh, to me afterwards and he goes, you're right, you know, <laughs> like, like, genuinely. It, it's clear. Like, everybody knows what, what Erdogan is trying to do. Biden, Biden keeps talking about we have good ties with Turkey. He's ignoring him in the UN. And Erdogan now two days ago from the time of this recording is saying, listen, I will go to Russia, like come in and, and, and respect me, come and deal. Because for Biden, it can't be, Erdogan can't be there. Why? Because Dili Erdogan represents something, even if he, his actions don't, but the symbolism of it represents something. And this is why for me, it's a case of, listen. How important, how important is symbolism in the context, symbolism. Of, in the context of Islamic revival? I think symbolism is fundamental primarily because it is something that you can point to and say it's alive. So let me give you an example. When Imran Khan came to power, listen, Dili, I never had any interest in going to Pakistan. I was never interested in Pakistan. I knew its history. I respected uh -huh. it. But I read a book by Muhammad Asad, The Road to Mecca. And Muhammad Asad has an, I don't know if it's in this book or if it's in one of his articles. He was sent by King Faisal to Pakistan to write the constitution. And he writes, remember, this is an Austrian Jew who became Muslim, mm. who fell in love with the Ummah, learned Arabic yep. and does his own interpretation of the Quran. He said, I went to Pakistan and I realized that Muhammad Ali Jinnah was not interested in Islamic State. That is, I found that the policymakers in Pakistan, I went there with this hope and, it's, and I found that they weren't interested in it. No, they so, kind of, it was still very much focused around the British colonial constitution exactly, with, with, with I, I, some kind of Islamic terminologies included. Exactly. So he was quite upset about that. But he argues that the symbolism of Pakistan as a, as a Muslim state was important. Yep. When I see Imran Khan coming out today and I listen, I've criticized Imran Khan over China, etc. And, and I believe that there are some really deep flaws. If Even if I understand Pakistan's situation and, and the way that it's being squeezed from all sides. And its economic it, reliance on China and so forth. 
But he inspires me, Dili. Dili, I'm a man. Allah created the, the, the body and the soul. Allah says in the Quran on the people of the hellfire, If we had heard and listened, we wouldn't be in Jahannam. In other words, Allah has given multiple faculties within which we interpret something. Dili, I'd be a liar if I said Imran Khan doesn't inspire me when I see him talk about the deen. I'd be a liar if I said Erdogan doesn't inspire me when he talks about the deen. Even though I know his actions and what he's doing, he gives me this belief that at least it still matters somewhat, that conviction still exists. Akhi, I'm happy to argue that Erdogan is forced into uncomfortable positions. I'm happy to say, okay, he's done it, but understand it, but he's wrong. I can do that because I feel like as Muslim journalists, this is what we should be doing. Amr bin Ma'roof wa nahi al-Munkar in the spirit of rectifying him, etc. But the way I, uh, what my concern is this, and I don't have an answer to this, but my concern is this, is that a lot of us pursue the approach of let's burn the house down because we're upset with the doorkeeper mm. as opposed to saying okay like it's, it's the roof is built a bit wrong the wall mm. is got a gaping hole in it you know the, the foundation but let's try to, to to build it because the reality is this uh, Dili, even and i'm going to go far with the example even though I, I find it distasteful to use it but i'm using it as an extreme example so so people can understand what i mean do you think that Muslim organizations, like Ramadan Tent Project, and I mention that because a good friend of mine runs it, do you think Ramadan Tent Project could do an iftar in Trafalgar Square if Sadiq Khan was not mayor of London? Do you think that, for example, a lot of these Muslim organizations, when they rent out some of these halls, in London in particular, the reality is Sadiq Khan, for all of the controversies that he's been involved in Islamically, he has opened the door that was not there before for Muslim right. organizations to go in. Pushback time. Yalla, pushback. Pushback time. Mashallah, you've given a fantastic spiel and a case for the what I understand the husna dhan of these leaders and this type of siyasa within a framework within, within a framework. framework, yeah. But then what I say to you is, where do we draw the line, Sami? Where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line when mine and your children grow up and they say, Mashallah, we have Mir Sadiq Khan. A Muslim, Muslim name, but also in the front line of the pride. We love you and you love us. And, we are, and, and this becomes now a role model. Where do we draw the line when Imran Khan talks about Kashmir nonstop while sending over our Uyghur brothers and sisters of the world? I'm saying, where do we draw the line of Husn al-Dhan and just continue consistently on Amr ibn Maruf wa Nahin al-Munkar? This is what I want to ask. So when you mentioned Ramadan tent, this, this was the good brothers who if I recall, they were banned because they had some dates that were, they, they didn't allow Israeli dates or something along yeah. this line. There was a massive hoo-ha about it. But then just recently, I see the same brothers on Ramadan tent doing a interfaith conjoined celebration of a Jewish uh, uh, festival. Where do we draw the line, Habibi? Where, where, where do we draw the line? When is it time to say that, look, pragmatism, maslaha, mafsada, you know, these things exist. They're a part of our tradition and our framework. But at what point does it become a clear bastardization of these frameworks and these maxims? That's the problem. I, I, I have an opinion, albeit I think it's a minority opinion. I have an opinion in that we tend to approach these issues from a Western perspective in that you have this ruler who is the one who decides, who is the one this, uh, you know, uh, uh, tasked with deciding everything and we should follow the ruler in this. I believe Islam doesn't actually advocate this in the same sense. And, and I'll give you, I'll give you suggest, I'll tell you exactly what I mean. So the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam at every critical juncture in his, in, in, in his seerah, he, he asks the major leaders that are around him. He asks Umar al-Khattab, Sa'ad al-Mu'ad. I don't think there's any instance in the seerah where he doesn't consult them before he actually makes that decision. 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is impressing upon us through the seerah that even the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Allah tells him وَأَمْرُهُمْ شُورَ بَيْنَهُمْ The reason being is that every single Muslim is uh, tasked with determining Amr بِمَعْرُوفُ وَالنِّحَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ And he has the faculties to do so. And that the shura prevents any extreme views, any extreme opinions, presents, it prevents any transgressions. And the ultimate shura results in a consensus with regards to how we approach the topic. Not the decision, but how we approach it. I.e. if the decision is wrong, the shura says, but it's wrong. Anyway, even if Erdogan decides to force through it or Sadiq Khan decides to force through it. In other words, the question supposes that I am taking my opinion on what is right or wrong from Erdogan or from Sadiq Khan or the like, rather than saying when Sadiq Khan does good here, it's good when he does something bad, it's bad here, and I'm stopping there. I grew up, and, and this is again rather anecdotish. I grew up in the media world. My father had a television channel in the Arab world. He, he made his name in the Sunni Shia debates over 10 years that became huge. And as a result, he was able to meet, you know, various leaders around the Arab world and, uh, and the like. And then he has a famous saying that King Abdullah once said to him, yeah, Hashimi, you're a, you're, you're a tough one, but I want to ask you that when you criticize us, like eat the meat, but not the bones. Like, please leave. <laughs> and King Abdullah was a wily fox, like, mashallah. To be honest, when you meet these people individually, you have a very different impression than what you get when, you, when, you, when you're at. And this is why... And, and, and digress, I'll go back to the point. This is why it's very interesting in that when you meet people face to face, trust me, it, it's a very different engagement. You think that when you meet Bin Zayed, when you meet somebody, you're going to be like, when in reality, you'll be like, Salaamu Alaikum, Kifal Haliks. Do you think that maybe, you know, you shouldn't have done this? or you should? It, it's very different. But anyway, I digress. My point here is that my Where do father, we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? I want to know, where do we draw the line? Of Hussein where and, I, and just... Where I draw the line. Where, 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 I draw, where I draw the line. And I have the luxury of not being my risk is not tied to any of them were it tied to some of them i don't know what i would say contrary to popular belief alhamdulillah I, I'm, I'm quite free in this like i'm that's why <laughs> i could talk about qatar or saudi or whoever yeah. uh, alhamdulillah so so i have a luxury of saying in that when i see something i don't like i take to facebook i take to social media i take to the media if i'm on al jazeera which i have been on for some time ever since i criticized qatar about israel <laughs> but uh but but every but when I have the opportunity, I say it. I do what is within my power. Everything within my power to say this is wrong. Turn back. When the Turks were trying to say that the reconciliation with the UAE was a good thing, I was telling them, Turks, beware, beware. If you say it's a good thing, you're saying Erdogan is a sellout. You're saying that he sold out his allies. Rather, if you really love Erdogan, say he done from position of weakness. There is no shame in this. Say he done from like these these things. Like you, for example, in your brother brother's podcast. Italy, if I'm asking you, what are you doing with this podcast? Why do you do it? Why did you set up five pillars? Echi, I, I know what you're doing five pillars. Echi, you go there, you scream at the top of your lungs. Yeah, Jama'a, listen. This is what we should be doing. This you do what's in your power in order to strive to push through it no. and that's and this is why i started with the idea of this idea that a muslim is not tasked to wait for somebody else the muslim is asked directly by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and leave the rest to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do what's in your power to try to get erdogan to reverse and the rest is in your power when the when the turkey tried to claim the credit for the palestine israel i felt it was my duty to say whoa erdogan really you're not doing anything at all yeah, and if i'm honest listen i'll be honest with you king <laughs> did an oil embargo king abdullah threatened to cut ties with the us in 2001 anybody can go to washington post and you see the terror in the american policymakers in 2001 before 9 11 when king abdullah says and this is a story narrated by abdul aziz atwiji allah yarahmu who was the advisor mm -hmm. who 
the architect of King Abdullah's rise to power, and I won't get involved in the Saudi internal politics, but Abdul Aziz Tuiji tells the story, he goes, we were set, we were ready to cut ties completely with the Americans because of, the, because of Bush's speech blaming the Palestinians for what happened in Palestine-Israel cause. Erdogan, I don't see you threatening your ties with the US. I don't see withdrawal of ambassadors. I don't see any cutting of business ties with Israel. I, don't, I still see that you have the invitation which is still standing to the Israeli foreign minister to come, etc. Erdogan, I want more, but I'm not saying I want more because I dislike you. I want more because in you, I see the potential for a genuine Muslim revival insofar as this particular issue is concerned and you're not doing it. So when brothers are saying, Wallahi, Sami, Wallahi, you are too harsh. Wallahi, haram alik, Wallah, you don't like Turkey. Do you want to stop coming to Turkey, brother? I'm like, okay, listen, I, 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 it's not that. But, but this is why I think that the question in a broad term has no answer. I mean, uh, I can say that, I, uh, that I'm honored to be here on Blood Brothers Podcast because I feel like you give, you've given me a platform to say to the Muslims, yeah, Jemaah, let's think about something that we can do together to move forward. But also the way I feel it and the way that my father raised me and taught me and what I saw my father achieve in general. And, and I talk about it because I know it sounds cliche, but for, he is my hero, like hands down. Like, Alhamdulillah. But, the, but, but, but when I see... The way my father stuck to his guns and still managed to succeed later, still managed to find some sort of influence by which to influence the Arab world. For me, I believe genuinely that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not asking you to change the world. Allah is telling you, I, I, I control the world. Everything is in my hands. Wallahu ghalibun ala amri. Allah decides, it's not you, I decide. You're not doing me a favor, astaghfirullah, I'm not speaking as if I'm Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but Allah says, man is not doing him a favor. Man does not do Allah a favor. Absolutely. It is your honor, Dili, and my honor that we have a platform to be able to denounce these decisions and to also defend our ummah when they do something right. And I think this in and of itself is the answer I want to give. I'm satisfied with this. I'm satisfied that as long as I use everything in my power to do these things, I believe I'm fulfilling my duty. If Allah decides to open a path and subhanAllah, I end up, or, or you end up, I don't want stuff Allah, I never want to be in it, but you end up, inshallah, the leader of a movement or whatever, like you go back to Bangladesh and the like, I hope to do the same with you. Dili, attaqillah, attaqillah, what are you doing? You know, making good ties with Modi when Modi is killing the Indians. I'm not saying you're going to do it, but, <laughs> but, 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 but as in, this is the only answer I can give to your question. I appreciate it's not a valid answer. But the, for example, Sadiq Khan, keep the pressure on him. Erdogan, keep the pressure on him. The last point I want to make, Dili, is this. What I, what I counsel against or what I feel is, and, and I have this sometimes in that I want to criticize something Erdogan has done, but I'm worried because I want to go to Turkey. Okay, I like Iskander of, of Kadeko. You it's know, beautiful. Keep up to Iskander of of course. Of and course. to be honest, I'm not going to lie to you. There is an emotional toll, Dili, when... You're planning your flight routes to make sure they don't fly over Egypt or they don't fly over, over Saudi. There's, a, there's an emotional toll when you realize you can't go to Mecca and Medina. You know, you can't do Umrah and you're seeing your friends putting these lovely videos and you're sitting there going, Ya Allah, like, let me go back. All because I said a couple of Facebook posts about Saudi Arabia. And you know, subhanAllah, it's a... Man, Allah, make it easy for you, my dear brother. It's a... But, but the point I want to make is this, is that I believe that this is the way that we should go forward. And the one thing that the point I wanted to make is that we should avoid celebrity culture in the Muslim community. Erdogan is fallible. Imran Khan is fallible. Agreed. You know, these other, as Agreed. in there is nothing wrong for me. To, uh, we have the hadith of the man who went to the Prophet and said to him in front of everybody, said to him, I'dil. Aggressively, Umar Khattab was like, let me teach this guy a lesson. I was, Muhammad said, no, let him. Muhammad said, no, let him. They go, I'dil. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rebukes the Prophet. Abasa wa tawalla anjaahu al-a'ma wa ma yudrika al-a'allahu wa yazzakka. Oh, yadhakaru fatanfa'ahu al-dhikra. As in, I'm not saying that we should bring the Prophet far from it, but I'm saying if the best of mankind, Allah is telling you that he made the mistake. Why are you telling me that Erdogan has some grand plan 
in the letter that he sends to the Israeli president. Why can't you say, I wish he hadn't done it? 100%. I, th I think, Allah, I just want to first and foremost say, my dear brother, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for you, my dear brother. May Allah allow you to visit Makkah, Medina, inshallah, again, and, 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 and reward you for the reasons why you're being prevented from going so. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think we agree on that, Habibi. I, I, think is, I think the problem lies in extremes. Yeah? If you are going to position Erdogan as someone who is, uh, is unable to make mistakes, or that we should literally blindly support him in everything, or that you position him to be a neo-Ottoman Sultan and so forth, you will have a problem when he does things and you will either be compromised to remain quiet, right? Or to just blindly always make reasons for his policies and his decisions. Then there's the other extreme where it's just non-stop criticism without yeah. a real understanding of reality and what it entails in running a state and running a society domestically and dealing with superpowers beyond that. I think those are the two extremes and what I wanted from you was that balance. And Alhamdulillah, I think I got the balance from you. And that is, <laughs> cri criticize them from the position of wanting them to not do that and be better and support them and credit them for the good things that they have done, even if it's in the position of symbolism. And you, and, and, and you put it bluntly, the Prophet himself said, لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحبه لنفسه Dili, if I was a ruler, if I was a ruler, I want to be, I want to bring Islam to power. I want, I want this, but I also want you to stand with me. I want my brothers to stand with me. I don't want them to, you know, condemn it. As in, I, I want to be helped. So why deny that to Erdogan? Why deny to Erdogan what you want for yourself in, in this regard? And, and I think this is why sometimes, even in and, and, and a classic example would be the Davutoglu Erdogan split. Listen, whenever I hear people saying, "But Davutoglu did this." Davutoglu and Erdogan used to sit together planning this stuff. And unlike me and you, they succeeded. They got to the top of the state. They were architects and they had a vision and they believed in it. Mm. And, and listen, I believe that to get there, you have to have some conviction. You can't just be a Machiavellian. Of even course. if you're you have to have some conviction. Why is your in why why are you taking sides? You're the job of mediator. Go reconcile between the two. Go and try to bring them together. You know, the, and, and, and the reality is that sometimes I do feel even Anwar Ibrahim and Mahavir Muhammad and the like, but but I do feel like sometimes. In the partisanship that we take, even in the Qatar-Saudi issue that, that you took in the blockade, which I could not understand for the life of me why people were painting it as good versus evil. I was just a fitna between tribal chiefs, you know, arguing with one another, you know, it's not like... It's, so why is I'm, that? Why, why is Qatar positioned to be the kind of saviour slash sympathizer slash supporter of Hamas, of Taliban uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood in general? How did they manage to position themselves as that? Without, whilst also being in the good books of Washington. Can you explain because that to some of our gave, listeners? Because they gave the Arab region that which it was crying out for, a platform to talk. So while in Qatar, you can't criticize the regime. While in Qatar, we're seeing today that half of the population are not being allowed to vote in the elections because they're suddenly second they're from, class from citizens. A, they're, they're people from the other tribe, yeah? A, a different it's, tribe. They're a different tribe. And, and some suggest that there are concerns because El Murra, Majority of them are in Saudi, so there is fears over their loyalty. Okay, even, the, okay. even though they stood with Qatar during the blockade and they gave their loyalty, but but it's clear that the 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 the, the measures to show that they're doing is to appease 
the US and look like a democracy as the World Cup is coming along. Otherwise, why would you suddenly make half your population second class citizens? Well, nobody was asking for democracy in Qatar in the first place. The people weren't asking for it. But my issue is that as, as, as uh, the, the, the famous Arab Spring poet who's also Qatari said, he said, we went along with Al Jazeera shouting democracy and the Arab Spring. And I am denied uh, even to protest against the Emir in my own country, even though I support the Emir. And all I'm saying to the Emir is, yeah, Emir, how can you give half Qataris the right to vote and deny us half the vote? And Emir of Qatar decided to imprison uh, Dr. Hazza bin Ali and yeah. left him in prison. And yeah. believe me, even me who, you know, sometimes you, you're, you're like, is Qatar, and you're like, did Emir Tamim really do that? Has that been at least still in prison? It's been uh, more than a month and has it been released for saying to the Emir Tamim, oh, I, I want the right to vote. And, and if you watch his video, he's very respectful to the Emir, telling him, I gave you my bay'ah and I'm with you and you are a just Emir and that's why I'm calling on you on this. But the reason that Qatar is so popular is because imagine if you're in the desert and you see a man dying of thirst. The one who gives that man water is seen by the thirsty man as his hero for life. This was a region where there was only one opinion, brutal dictatorship, brutal authoritarianism. If you're Tunisian, Al Jazeera pops up, suddenly you hear the other opinion. If you're in Egypt, Al Jazeera pops up, suddenly you're hearing the other opinion. Suddenly these governments are under threat, even if Al Jazeera is not talking about Qatar. And of course, it had a huge impact and people are very grateful for that. And this is how Qatar built its reputation in that people turned a blind eye. Okay, they made ties with Israel in 96 to stop Saudi from coming in. They set up the largest US military base and they're spending $8 billion to expand yep. it now. And they're running around Afghanistan saying to, saying to Biden, look how good I am in Afghanistan while they treat their migrants uh, in, the, in a deplorable way. Suddenly Afghan refugees are al-ain wal-ras because suddenly they want Biden, they want to have him on side in a way that I think is, is very, but anyway, irrespective of that. But Qatar is famous for that. Qatar is famous because at a time in which the region was under threat, Al Jazeera gave that outlet. And I can't deny the impact Al Jazeera had in those times. Al Jazeera has declined slightly after it took size during the Arab Spring, after it became clear Qatar had a foreign policy issue and the like. But I also think that on the other side, it's hard to, to, to defend Saudi. It's hard to say with a straight face. Even, I'll give an example. In Yemen, Dili, the Houthis are part of a national dialogue. All of Yemen's parties come together. They come to an agreement. They form a government. They decide on elections. Six months before the elections, Houthis take over the capital and seize the country by, by force. But because people hate Saudi, Houthi is irrelevant. What matters is the Saudi airstrikes. What matters is the Saudi, Saudi bombardment, which I, I, I condemn. There is a third way. I don't like what Saudi's conduct in the war. But yeah, Jama'a, the problem in Yemen is not Saudi. But because everybody hates Saudi, it clouds the Yemen war. And now Houthis yesterday completely took uh, Al-Baida, which is a province. And mm. they're happy. They're laughing. They're saying, look, we've dominated all this territory and the world is still putting pressure on Saudi Arabia. Saudi is hard to defend. Their PR is terrible. They don't go out and brag about the amount of money they give to charities. Not that I'm saying that Saudi is good, but I'm saying that their PR is poor. Where Qatar does fantastic PR in that it, the chief of Mossad can come to Qatar and Doha and amicably meet Amir Tamim. Listen, Dili, if the chief of Mossad went to Saudi Arabia, what would be the global reaction? What people, would be the reaction of the Muslim world? They'd be up in arms. They'd be up in arms, Akhi. The Qataris flew first class, the head of the World Zionist Organization to uh, Doha. They flew, uh, the, the, the chief of Mossad was regularly in contact with the Emir of Qatar. And, and, you, and the Israeli newspapers are saying that Qatar's support is vital in keeping Hamas from uh, exploding in resistance. What do you want me to make of that? But Al Jazeera is so elegant in its PR. And it's understandable in that it continues to give the voice to the oppressed everywhere outside of Qatar. So if I'm a Tunisian and I'm sitting there and I see all the channels are only going one way, I'm not going to say Al Jazeera, you know, like, go away. <laughs> I'm going to embrace it. And this is why I think the Qataris are very smart. And, and there's an anecdote. There is a, a former foreign minister, I won't say which country because then everybody will know who he is, of an Arab world. And, and, I, and I had the honor of sitting with him once. Very pleasant guy. And I said to him, uh, 
Who is the most impressive foreign minister you ever met? He said, Arabi or uh, Frenji? I said, the Arabi. He said, uh, principled or not principled? I said, what do you mean? He goes, because the most effective I ever met was Hamad bin Jassim of Qatar. But he did things I could never accept for myself. But as in, as, as in for yeah. he said, you know, Qatar helped us. They, they did a lot. They achieved a lot. They helped us. They, they gave us money. They funded us, etc. But the tactics, I can't. I, I, and this is the, the issue here in that now when you're looking at Qatar, and this is where I'm, I'm uh, throwing the curveball or the nuance. Al Jazeera is useful. It's a vital channel. And I'm not saying that because I've been, uh, I haven't been on Al Jazeera for a while. But anyway. Get Sally uh, back on, AJ. <laughs> but, Get but, him but, back but, on. <laughs> But, but, but Al Jazeera is important in delivering the other opinion. In Tunisia, it's bringing the other side of the argument. So is Al Arabi 21, Al Arabi 21, uh, and these others. I don't think the solution is that Al Jazeera shouldn't exist. Al Jazeera has its limitations, it's true. But Qatar also has its limitations. We should see it for what it is, in that the solution is not to support Qatar against Saudi, but to support an, 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 an identity, or I'm trying to put it into, into words, but. To support the unification of these. I mean, you look at the status quo with Dili Hussein in that in the region, for a small Gulf state to be independent, they need an American military base. Otherwise, they have to deal with Saudi Arabia. Dili, is this independence? No, it's is not. This, I mean, do, do, I, do I harm the region? I mean, but if you're Qatar, if you're Al Thani, and the Saudis have a poor foreign policy, poor foreign policy, I'm not, this is, this is one, another issue. I mean, Al Saud clearly, you know, they don't have a good foreign policy. Why should I be forced because of their power to follow them? Mm. At least the American military base, I can, you know, the Americans aren't imposing conditions on me specifically. Yeah, yeah. So I can, so if I'm with Al-Thani, if I'm with Emir Tamim today, what do I say to him? Get rid of the military base so Saudi can invade. No. Keep the military base. But, uh, and so you stop there. Uh, genuinely, my sentence just stops there. I mean, uh, then do you know what? Then this nicely brings us to the close of the podcast, which is, can any kind of Muslim unification in any meaningful way, whether you want to coin it as Islamic revival or political Islam or some more Islamic governance, heck, let's put all of that aside. Just any meaningful unification of the Muslim world or even Middle East and North Africa in the construct of the nation state in the existing world order. Can such a thing be allowed? The OIC is a joke. The Arab League's a bigger joke. And, and 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 really these they get together to pat each other on the back or to play little playground politics against one another but can there ever be any meaningful muslim political unification with us military bases in our countries with us being practically enslaved economically to the international monetary systems that we have can such a vision even be had in the current constructs that we have. Let's wrap up on this. Tell me your thoughts. I think in the beginning of the century. Very quickly, because you said to me, because I, while you were saying it, I imagined it. If I was with Amir Thani, what would I say to him? What would I, no, no, wallahi, when you were saying- <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. No, no, I thought, I thought, what would I say to him? Then I thought to myself, just for jokes, just for a reaction, <laughs> just for a reaction, I would have said to him, kick the Americans out and become a part of Saudi. Oh, but that wouldn't be allowed because we're Qataris. Why, why, why wouldn't you consider just being a part of Saudi? Why wouldn't you be considered being part of a wider state of that region under a single leader? Why, why is this so far-fetched and so unfathomable 
than to have a US military base in your land. That's what I would say to a Thani, but I'd spend a lot of time if I had to word it. That, you hit the nail on the head. In 1974, if, if, I remember if I remember correctly, I might be wrong on the date, but I think it's the 1970s, Burgeba and Gaddafi agreed to unite Tunisia and Libya. It was united for 24 hours, and then Burgeba pulled out. <laughs> Um, in, in other words, there was this. In other words, the debate that that you're opposing was present in the 1970s, even in Algeria. This idea of can we unite, bring these countries together? Now, of course, well, um, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser did it with Syria and, and Syria and, and Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. And I and and and, and the, as from from my readings, and, and I'm not going to pass judgment. It's not my opinion, but the the, the prevalent argument is that people couldn't take Abdel Nasser's overwhelming leadership. The Syrians were like, nah, we, we don't like ourselves being underneath. Then Yanni, this is Asabiya then. Uh, it, it is Asabiya. It, it, it is a type of Asabiya, then that means that, that is poisoned for all the way from Morocco, all the way to Indonesia, as north as the Caucasus to the south of Tanzania. But that's something that, that should be appreciated. And, and I say this as a Muslim born and raised in London, born and raised in the West. There was no utility in me expressing a Tunisian Algerian identity in school because there, were, there weren't that many Tunisian Algerians, to be honest. The best way for me to do was to say I'm Muslim because then it, then it meant I could hang around with the Pakistanis, Bengalis. I didn't like cricket, cricket too much. But, as in, but, but you understand, as in the, the, the necessity of, of, of that identity meant that, you know, the, the witness at my wedding was a Bengali and a Nigerian brother, you know? And, and it, it was something that, that, that seemed so simple for me and something I actually took for granted until I actually started ex traveling extensively to the region. And I found that when you're a majority population, you don't see things the same way. And not only that, the nationalization waves were very strong in those particular countries. And not only that, a lot of the nationalization waves are tied to revolutionary struggle. So tied to freedom. This idea of Algeria became free because the Algerians fought for it, as opposed to telling the story that Abdel Nasser was funneling arms to us. You know, he was, it, it's, it's not, we, we talk about the, the, the Ummah side of it as secondary to the nationalist identity story kind of thing. So for you, it's very easy to say. For me, it's very, when you say it, I think, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But I promise you, Dili, from my experience, and inshallah, one day, like I have the honor of hosting you in, in our village. In, Sami Habibi, in Sami Habibi, wallahi, when, when, look, as someone who is Islamically inclined in his politics and so far, and even in, in, his, in his job as a journalist, I'm telling you to try tell Bangladeshis yeah. That if there was a Pakistani Khalifa, it's hard because yeah, we because because we had to fight our brothers. Our brothers at that time, that government, that regime oppressed East Pakistan. We had to fight them. We had to side with the Hindu India to fight our brothers. But look how it's internalized. I mean, it, it, it's the way that story is internalized. Of course, exactly. That's what, so you're saying that these stories and these narratives are potent. Very. I'll give an example. I'll give an example, Dili, and, and I know. I haven't seen all five seasons, but you know Dirilish Erturul, Resurrection yeah, yeah. Erturul. Yeah. The thing that I liked about it so much was the way in which they made Erturul relatable to every Muslim watching that TV, albeit that there's a bit more nationalist sentiment of course. as the seasons go on. But the of first course. season in particular, you feel everybody's looking at Erturul thinking he belongs to me. Yeah. 100%. And, and, and there is this revolution taking place. There is now this Barbaros TV, Sultan yeah. Abdul Hamid. Yes. Sultan Abdul Hamid, I, as a North African Arab, my Bengali friends, my everybody's watching thinking, Sultan! Mm. Yeah, there's, yeah. That, there's that scene where he talks about when Paris are trying to do that play to mock the Prophet oh, And he goes, I will bring everything crashing down for us. Listen, I won't lie. I sat in front of the screen. I was in tears. I said, Allahu Akbar! 100%. Like, really, but, but the thing is, think about it, Dili. Why did my heart resonate with that? Look, I got hairs. My hairs are raised. Just yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> just because just, just I, I, I remembered the clip. Yeah, exactly. Or, or the one where he says he saw the 
Prophet in a dream where he's giving the money, the guy comes and yes. asks him, continues giving the money. Yeah. But but Dili, why does my heart resonate with that? Why do I as an as, as a North African Arab resonate with that? Despite the narratives in the country sometimes that Ottomans are colonizers or whatever amongst the minority opinion. Why do you resonate with that? Why do because it's something that is a common heritage, a common identity. And I think that now what we're seeing, I think personally, especially in our generation, is the move away or, or a counter to those nationalist identities that have failed. But now we're seeing greater common identities emerge. And this is why I mentioned why Erdogan is useful. Erdogan is pushing that. Even in the economic ties with, the, with Pakistan, with Uzbek, Uzbekistan is going through an Islamization drive. Listen, while it still has a long way to go, in the last three years, Suddenly, hijab is now allowed yep. in public. Yep. And I'm not yep. talking the headscarf. The of course, hijab is allowed yeah, yeah. in public. And this, you know, was, and, this, and this is a country where Islamic activists and du'at were boiled alive under Karimov. Exactly, you know, and not too long ago either. You mm. know, so so isn't the trend is clear? But why? Because suddenly there are actors who are speaking in a common language. Erdogan became powerful not because he made Turkey strong, but because he made Turkey accessible for me, you and everybody else. So everybody flock there. Do you know how many think tanks have gone there? Do you know how many uh, uh, talent have left the US and UK to go to Turkey? Yep. Listen, before it was unthinkable when I was a kid for somebody to leave the West in all of its uh, progress to go to a Muslim country and decide, but Turkey is Turkey, doing that. Turkey has become that. It, Turkey has become that. So I think that with these shows, and, and I think it's important that, you know, when we push these initiatives, the mentality changes. But I also, there's one final thing I, I want to mention, which is that we need to escape the view that it needs to happen, or if it doesn't happen in our generation, it won't happen. We need to remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in charge of everything, and that you might be just a piece of the jigsaw in that, you know, many years later, people say, ah, oh, you know, in, in, in the year 2000, in the 2010s, 2021, they used to have a number of media channels, you know, One Path Network, Blood Brothers Podcast, which were integral in laying the groundwork and the groundwork for, you know, Fulan, Fulani to, you know, rise, you know, Dili Hussein heavily influenced that person. And that's why he's a Diliist, you know, he's a whatever. But, 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 but as in, do you see what I mean in that? Yeah. I, I personally have come to perceive myself and I could be wrong in this, but I'm just throwing the idea out. In that I am honored in so far as I believe that my work and what I do contributes, not decisively settles, because I don't think I have the power, but contributes. I, I feel proud and I go to sleep happy at night when I feel that I have done something where I feel like my aim is somebody might have listened to a video I did or might have listened to a podcast and thought, you know what? Yes, you know what? This is this is actually true. Why don't I go and try and do something you know, similar or try to promote this identity. Oh, wait, that makes sense. I have an affinity for this identity. Maybe I should watch Dirlish Ertuğrul. Maybe I should watch uh, whatever. I like this idea. And I think that the reason why I mentioned is because it goes back to my first point that we made at the start, which is about the personal interactions, which is how to fight the nafs, how to fight the ego, how to fight the greed, how to fight the idea that, I mean, and, and I always pose these questions to, uh, I mean, I get some random students who message sometimes, they're like, you know, what would you advise? And I say, well, ask yourself a question. Would you contribute to something in which your name wasn't put at the end of it? You know, like, would you, you know, if, if you saw the success, would you be happy with it if they didn't say, Allah, he sent me. If it wasn't for him, we would never be there. Wallahi, like, I'd support it. If he didn't have yeah. my name, I'd support it. Yeah, yeah. As in, I'd as give in, my life and soul to it. But you've reconciled that. Yeah, Many of brothers haven't. Many Muslims haven't. Well, they need to. And, and that's why I think that, and I finish on this point. One of the things that I've noticed, and, and, and I'm going to finish on a, on a rather dark note, and, and may, may the brothers forgive me. The Muslim community can be very nasty. Um, in, in a way, for example, the Prophet said that three things to every Muslim is haram, is sacred. His property, his wealth, and his honor. We tear apart each other's honor. As in, uh, as in, in my case, for example, if I say that Qatar allied with Israel, people say that he's trying to do Umrah 
to Mecca and Medina trying to appease bin Salman, so he's jumping on the anti-Qatar. I'm thinking, wallahi, at least if he had offered me that, if he had offered, and then I refused, I tell you, mashallah, you've got, but, but why, or for example, if I say that Saudi Arabia is this, go, ah, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he appears on Al Jazeera often, so he's with, with Qatar. For this idea that there is no idea of benefit of the doubt, even though that brother should know that when he makes these statements, I get hasanat for it. You know, he's eating from my of back, course. for example. But the idea, and, and you mentioned Husn al-Dhan. Husn al-Dhan sometimes is belittled these days, primarily because we want to be, you know, condemning things, and we want to sound strong, etc. But the Prophet wasallam, even with Ubay ibn Salul, would go and say salam to him. Even with Ubay ibn Salul, Rais al-Munafqeen, the, the head of the... The Prophet would proactively go and say salam to him and the Sahaba would be bewildered. So, and this is what I mean by like, I read the seerah with a new light, you know, like before you just skip over it, you learn it as a kid and then you read it as a student and as a student you have this arrogance where you think you understand it and then you read it later, you think, subhanAllah, can I do that? Am I capable of doing it? Could I sit in the same room? Could I? Could I? Yes, subhanAllah, ya wallah, ya ahsan al-khalq. Ya khair al-khalq, ya khatim al-anbiya. Wallahi, the Prophet Muhammad was an extraordinary individual, not because he entered Mecca, but because he had the capacity to fulfill these things that are absolutely integral in politics. Integral in politics. If you don't do it, it all cascades. And this is why I think sometimes that my issue, not with academia, I don't, it's not like I'm blambas in academia, but I want to word it differently. I don't know how to put it in academic sense. How do I put that in a journal? That, yeah, jama'ah, the Prophet said, you know, you know, give to your neighbor and, and, and say the kind word because inna shaytana yanzahu baynahum and that means shaytan dances around when your word is not clear. How, how do I put that in academic discourse? of a, And that's why I thought, subhanAllah, I, I, I like that political analysis. I'll just keep writing my article. <laughs> but, but, but it's these things and this is why when I see it, the more I realize my incapabilities of bringing about what I would like to see, to, what, what I like to achieve, the more I realize my own limitations, the more I realize how incredible the Prophet ﷺ was that he persisted in da'wah, that he continued to go to the tribes, they continued to talk to him, continued to talk to ordinary people, Dili, not talking to me and you who, alhamdulillah, have uh, careers, and alhamdulillah, you know, but talking to the random bystander. The Prophet ﷺ would stop and talk to him. Yep. Listen, Dili, if you ask me, would I stop and talk to somebody in a bystander? I don't know. I'd probably be like, I'll give you two minutes max. For example, as in, and this is where, where I feel like we don't talk about politics in this light. And I think the reality is that Umar al-Khattab, there was a famine in his time. It doesn't mean he was a bad leader. You know, when they told him there's a famine, he tied a rock around his stomach. Somebody did it today. They'd be like, oh, is that his policy? We're starving, you know, mm -hmm. like it's, but as in, when I put it in this context, I come to feel this is the beauty of Islamic politics, of political Islam. And I will use that term. Because political Islam is unique and the reason why there is Islamophobia, the reason why it's under threat is because it remains the most credible social, economic, political alternative to the current global system that we see. That's why Hinduism is not under the same scrutiny. That's why Buddhism is not under, with all due respect to those, uh, to, to those religions, I'm not uh, going to lambast anybody's beliefs. I don't no, think this, was my, this was my dissertation. Political yeah. Islam has replaced communism as the main ideological threat to capital hegemony. It, 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 it has injunctions on everything in terms yeah. of how it should, and this is why the reality is, and Muhammad Asad, the road to Mecca, uh, makes, a good, makes a good point, and I've read the book over a hundred times, and he goes, this is the problem with the Western world in that it sees so much of itself in Islam. It sees so much of itself that it ter it's terrified of it. It sees shura, it sees you know, the, 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 the justice, it sees whatever, it sees etc. But it, is, but it resents the idea that it is therefore not superior. And this is the thing, it is rather, people think it's the difference that makes the West. No, it's the similarity. 
the idea that all of those achievements, but Islam demands that it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where the West wants to demand that it comes from man. Mm. And that's why the reality is people argue why liberals and Muslims tend to ally with one another. It's because of these similarities in this, in this regard. But liberalism, of course, has no framework, no boundary. It just goes all out. Whereas Islam in its very tenets has the framework in which it pursues. And this is why I think that this is why Islam is the fastest growing population in the world. This is why it's the fastest growing population in the Western world. This is why more Europeans and Americans are reverting to Islam. It is because of these similarities, not the differences. And this is why I finish on this point. This is why I mentioned this idea about putting things into context. About 80 years ago, we were in colonization and then de facto colonization in the Arab Spring. We are not in a situation where we're getting worse. We are in a situation where things, if you look at in the grand picture, things are better. changing. Allah is looking after his deen. Allah is looking after his Islam. The problem that Muslims have, in my opinion, is we can't find our place in Allah's plan. Or rather, we don't accept our place in Allah's plan. This idea of Allah gave us a unique set of powers, but not all of the powers so that he forces us to work together. And I think this is the issue in that, and, and, and this is why it's a battle of the nafs, etc. I realize none of that is a specific answer. I realize a lot of that is general trends and vague. But, but my point is that the, I, I personally see more reason for optimism than despair. And I understand when the Prophet says, If you say, if, if you aspire to good things, you will find it. And I believe that I am aspiring to greater unity, greater uh, interaction between Muslim brotherhoods, not no conflict. There will be conflict that's inevitable. Even the Sahaba had Absolutely. conflict and disagreed and sometimes it got worse. But I believe that this wave that you're a part of with your Blood Brothers podcast, that One Path Network, that Elmfeed and all these other different brothers. And I could mention people from all over the world, but I know the brothers from these institutions. So I'm going to plug them. But, uh, these, uh, <laughs> but, but, but when I see the, these organizations... The reality is that we are moving, we are pushing. And I think the greatest testament, Dilly, is that me and you grew up in Western societies. Yeah. And, and we're here. Yeah. Here talking so, about this. And we're talking about it. It's like, subhanAllah. And, and this is why I think that, subhanAllah, like glory be to Allah, who is the sole protector of his deen. The soul. We are not the, he's the sole protector. And the honor is in being part of protecting that deen. Absolutely. And may Allah never takes that honor away from us. Amin, and, the, and, and I'll finish on this point, Amin, on, on this final point. The ayah that scares me the most these days, every, every chapter in your life, you have a different surah that really Absolutely. Is Surat Al Imran, first page. The idea that Allah, we make in a dua that Allah does not take our heart away from it. So this idea that it's possible. Deep. Of course it is. That, that today, listen, I've seen these guys who've left Islam and they decide to do like YouTube channels and they do like yeah. whatever. And, and, and I like to mock, not that I like to mock them, but I think and I think, etc. But when I read the ayah, I think, ah, Allah, please don't make me like that. Yeah, it Allah, can happen to Allah, any of us. Allah, it can Allah, happen please. to the best of us. Yeah, yeah Allah, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and when the Prophet is saying, yeah, al -qurub, thabbit qalbi ala uh, uh, and the Prophet is saying, Allah, thabbit qalbi ala deenik, that's the, 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 and this is why I, 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 I insist on this, in that, remember, it's an honor to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't think it the other way around. Don't think that but for you, Allah will not be, Allah can easily, you know, in, 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 in a flash, just change everything. And when you look at the world in this way, I think it's a happy place. I think it's a, there's something happy with striving in the sake and having that promise of Jannah later on if you succeed in it. And I think that as long as I, I'm, I'm aware of these limitations, aware of these whispers in the back of my head, etc., I think that's the blessing in and of itself, as opposed to feeling completely at ease. And that's why I spent most of this podcast with you, rather trying to say to you the questions that I'm asking myself, as opposed to giving answers. And I hope those who are listening will forgive no, me. No, 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 no. But, but, but it, it's, 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 I hope that through that, it, it conveys that 
you know, on, on video or on camera, you can appear defiant, but inside it, it, it's, it's, you know, may Allah always protect us and preserve us. I mean, I mean, Yarab, do you know what? I, I'm really, you know, I had a, uh, I had a kind of depiction of how this podcast was going to go. I thought it was gonna. I thought it was just gonna be a Q and A, Q and A, to and fro. <laughs> but what we actually got today, Alhamdulillah, was some of the inner thoughts and feelings of Sami, our brother Sami Hamdi. Alhamdulillah. I listen, and we not only did we, inshallah, will benefit from his beautiful and very much nuanced and needed nasiha, grounded, as far as I'm aware, uh, in the Quran and Sunnah. We also saw a masterclass of how to ensure a prime time spot in TRT. Al Jazeera, <laughs> Al Arabiya, NBC, you name it. So if you're all watching, get our brother back on. <laughs> nah, well, Sami, listen, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Barakallah, uh, May Allah accept your work. May Allah bless you and preserve you for the betterment of Islam and Muslims. I mean, and uh, I hope to have the next episode in person, inshallah. Inshallah. I'll bring a bowl of couscous with me, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> Take care. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with Sami Hamdi as much as I did. Uh, it wasn't the kind of episode that I was kind of expecting. I was expecting a very kind of to and fro Q&A. But in fact, I, I saw a side of our brother Sami, which you don't tend to see in the television or when he's doing interviews and so forth. So mashallah. Um, before I wrap up today, remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel for all our avid listeners. You can find us on all the major uh, platforms. And uh, until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Burma's podcast, a five pillars production.